Hi, Ronnie. By the way, is Ronnie pronounced correctly? Yeah, yeah. Perfect. How are you doing today? Uh, no, no complaints. Everything is uh, great. Uh, just uh, a very busy Monday as usual. but uh... Yeah. In my case, it's also very busy, but it's unusual in summer to be as busy as now. So it's just crazy. But back to the real world. What mm. was your first computer? Oh, it was um, an XD, obviously. Um, Atari? No, no, it was an IBM compatible XD. Ah, XD, uh, oh, ST. I thought uh, ST. Okay, uh, XD. IBM. Uh, yeah. uh-huh. um, and I, I remember just uh, the joy of just uh, typing something into the command line and feeling like a total badass just uh, seeing... Uh, uh, just running a simple dear command as a child made me feel like I was a major hacker. So it was... Uh, uh, unusual that you started with uh, IBM straight and not, you know, C64 or ZX or something like that. Yeah, I, I guess it was uh, way back and my grandparents actually had that computer. So I, I kept staying over just so I could play around with it. And then eventually they just gifted me the computer and that uh, when I, I got started. And then I actually got into coding very early as well because, uh, you know, the potential of what I could do with this thing just blew my mind. So I started, you know, writing uh, weird games in BASIC and things like that just to learn the ropes um, and had tons of fun. So you didn't play it? You just right away started, you know, to code or you wanted to code? Well, I definitely started playing some games, but then... I remember I was looking at this amazing game that I really liked. It was a strategy game called, uh, I guess, Sword of Aragon or something like that. It was just a very simple game. But then at the end, it just said written in Quick Basic. And I was like, yeah, I can do Quick Basic. What do you mean it was written in Quick Basic? And that's where like, the magic or the kind of the illusion of the complexity of writing games just uh, went away. And, and I no longer had the fear of trying it and... And I started trying to, to write my own strategy games. Granted, none of them was really that great, but uh, I had a blast working on that. What's, what's interesting that you, you know, started to play one game, then you saw made with Quick Basic, and then uh-huh. you immediately started to code, right? Exactly, exactly. Because I, by then I was kind of, I knew a little bit of Quick Basic, and um, just the fact that I could. You know, it's something I already know how to do, and all that stands between me and making a great game is just effort. Well, that sounded easy, so I, I mm-hmm. immediately got started on it. What immediate? Uh, you knew already how you know for lo- what for loops are, if statements. Mm-hmm. How you learned that? Uh, well, I I, I I had these booklets uh, for learning basic that somebody that were in my house. I don't remember even who bought them, um, and you know, I, out of curiosity, I was playing around doing the obligatory, obligatory you know, tutorials of making a, a Pong game or, or making... A, uh, it, it was all weird uh, loops and go-to statements and uh, nothing very complicated. Um, you know, it, it wasn't anywhere near the complexity we have in code today. Um, mm-hmm. So, I, But I already knew something about uh, programming. And for me, that was like a big icebreaker that, yeah, if I know that, and this game was, you know, using that those same if statement and for loops, then what's the problem? I can do the okay. same thing. Nice. And there were no problems with graphics as well because they are harder, or was it a text-based game? 
that took more time. Okay, uh, this is what the whole I mean. uh, idea of you know double buffers and mm -hmm. uh, starting to hit the constraints of the resources of the machine. Mm -hmm. um, and again, it's not that I I did something too complicated, but uh, I got started just you know writing some text games, and then I I upgraded myself to think about graphics. But still, it was. Uh, I think it, there's the, kind of like a magic to it. Uh, I, I'm really nostalgic about these days when you're just sitting, you know, in your room as a kid and the, just the vast potential of what you can create uh, is, is kind of amazing. Yeah, vast potential in somehow, you know, incredible machine, right? Without mm -hmm. boundaries. This also a magical mo moments, as you said. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, and now it is even more magical machines, but with less magic, right? Because somehow, uh, I don't know, they are just too complete, right? Everything is already solved, seems like. Back then, you know, everything was possible. And uh, yeah, this is maybe the difference, right? So now we have great apps, and back then there was almost no apps. So And we imagined that you could do, I don't know, some crazy Star Wars or Star Trek stuff, you know, with the PC. This was maybe the difference, right? And And now everyone knows what's possible, maybe. Yeah, you're right. It was more of an age of discovery. Uh, and now that everything is already charted, um, there's mm -hmm. maybe less magic about it. I think I I felt a little bit of the same kind of uh, sensation when VR apps started appearing because there was the same feeling of experimentation and a lot mm -hmm. of indie developers created these experiences where they were kind of mm -hmm. uh, finding out what the limits were and what they can do and uh, and discovering new metaphors for UI and uh, interaction and all of that. Uh, so I guess I felt some of that when, when I was uh, kind of following up on that trend and experimenting with it myself. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I I, I love those. Uh, you know, the the happy eighties for me were um, yeah a great time to be a kid. Yeah, uh, and this all happened in San Francisco. You know, your quick base. I don't know. No, I was uh, in the East Coast at the time. Um, ah, okay. Where, okay, yeah. interesting. Because uh, right now, you know, you said you know it's a beautiful day in San Francisco. So I thought, mm -hmm. okay, maybe um, you also grew up in San Francisco. Interesting. So what happened after? Quick basic time. So you switch to another language or you stick with quick basic? So after you know your gaming experiences. So I think just um, learning uh, or, or being, having the orientation to write code opens up a lot of doors for you because you're instantly kind of less afraid of it and, and it becomes kind of a second nature. Uh -huh. So I did some coding in school as well. Like the fact that I could get graded for a coding exercise to me was... A joy. So yeah, I could do what I like and get grades um, um, for it, and kind of it would count as schoolwork. So that was great. <laughs> um, so uh, I did some coding in school, uh, Turbo Pascal, and mm -hmm. all sorts of other things. Um, and then when I first got started, actually writing code, it was uh, .NET and then Java. Uh, oh. Why .NET for ah oh, .NET because of your basic background, right? Uh, I. I don't recall. I think that I, I was kind of interning at a company and they were using .NET. So I just learned that uh, back when I was in college. Um, and then I got uh, another job at the place where they, they were using Java. But it was nothing like the Java we all know and love today. It was um, 
the days of J2EE and... Oh, these are my days. I like J2EE. So I did <laughs> yeah, J2EE and, and Java E. And enterprise Java beans and all sorts uh -huh. of things that were kind of making... Um, it was very complicated. And I, Which I server you used back then if it was J2EE? Was it WebSphere? Uh, I think it was JBoss, I guess. Okay. Uh, but I just remember a lot of XMLs and uh, hard configuration uh, experiences and, um, you know, looking at logs, trying to find out uh, things was very, very difficult. But this uh, is strange because JBoss and XML, so usually, you know, this XML was at the very, very beginning. Mm -hmm. And then since 2006, we got annotations and... Uh, Prior to 2006, I used a tool called Xdoclet, which was basically a JavaDoc-based generator because I really didn't didn't like XML at all. So I try not to avoid that. So um, and then annotations happened with Java 5. So from from then we got you know there was no XML. So th th this was actually interesting that uh, you still had to do you know the XML configuration stuff. So was it after 2006? Yeah, yeah, it was before. It was uh, um, around 2004, 2005. Oh, okay. This could be. So you didn't use, you know, Xdoclet then? You just no, used no, the hardcore hard 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 XML experience. Almost was, right to know YAML right now, right? Yeah, it was terrible. <laughs> that, that's yeah. all I can say. It, it, it was a lot of XMLs um, and a lot of uh, boilerplate uh, and... Mm -hmm. Somehow that was the impression that was kind of imprinted in my mind about Java because afterwards I moved on to other languages because I, I again, changed jobs and they were using other things. And then when I came back to Java, I was kind of amazed by kind of the progress that was made and how, like, you know, this is not the Java that I remembered. Mm -hmm. it's something else. Uh, and, and you studied as something, computer science or no? Yeah. So I studied computer science. And, and you I, learned, which languages you learned uh, during your study? Uh, Java, as well as, like, Java was the first uh, language. Okay. Then, you know, Scheme and Lisp and other okay. specific languages as well. What's, what's interesting that you learned .NET first, because .NET came after Java. So this is what what's interesting. So, uh, you know, you started, uh, I don't know, I, I would assume around 2000, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and and .NET happened, I think, after two thousand, right? It's like two thousand three, maybe was uh, .NET on the horizon, and Java is already there. So Java was pretty old, so I would say seven years or something like this. And mm -hmm. it started with .NET, and then you switch to Java. So this is back to Java. It's a really unusual trajectory. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I I switched a lot of programming languages uh, over the years. Uh, I think like the the language itself to me is not that critical or important. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, I, I had the chance to work with teams on very complex applications in Python, in .NET, um, in Node, in Ruby, in Java. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, it's these are the same problems. Uh, mm -hmm. Managing complexity is mm -hmm. hard in all of these different languages and scalability is hard in all of these different languages. Um, and in a similar way, today when I'm hiring developers for my own team, um, I actually don't quite pay a lot of thought to or put a lot of emphasis on the background in terms of the 
um, of the programming language. So for example, we, we took somebody on who had experience in a completely different programming language. Um, because, you know, ultimately, I guess what matters more is kind of the, your problem solving mm -hmm. skills and how coherent you are in kind of solving those problems and how readable your code is and how, um, familiar you are with some of the patterns and uh, ideas that uh, you need to know in order to solve these problems. Uh, and the language is a technicality to some extent. Uh, it's interesting because I have, but, I have uh, different opinion because, um, because yeah, no, I'm with you with language. It doesn't matter. It's just syntax. But mm -hmm. uh, um, I, I just stick with Java. And mm -hmm. uh, what's, if I would try another language, I can, I can learn, I think, fast other languages. But in Java, I, I already know, you know, the problems. I know how, what, what happens if I do this. So um, I'm, I'm, I, I'm, I'm quicker in, so, in problem solving, you know, because mm -hmm. if I see a context, an error, exceptions, I can immediately know what to do. And, uh, and this is not, I, I'm not talking about syntax errors. It's more like, you know, JVM errors or what happens when a JVM is overloaded. And, and I would use different language, um, uh, what, what will happen is I would always assume, you know, the problem is on my side and I would try to fix, you know, my own errors, even if, even if, you know, the problem is on, on, on the runtime JVM so, uh, or cloud or whatever. So I think there is a, a huge value in sticking, you know, to one environment ecosystem and not, mm -hmm. you know, switch back and forth because language doesn't matter, as you said, but the ecosystem does. So I, I, I have a counter argument to that. And of course, I agree with what you say. Uh, I think, you know, th there is a lot of merit to it. But at the same time, um, one of the most uh, in one of the things that influenced my thinking the most was actually changing the paradigm a little bit okay. in my coding. So for example, I was using very static languages, I was using .NET and Java. And then I started experimenting with Ruby and Python. Mm -hmm. And I learned a lot from that. And I carried over a lot of that thinking and learning back to .NET and Java. And I started uh, back in the days writing um, um, libraries for testing in .NET that more resembled maybe RSpec in, in Ruby or that more resembled um, Cucumber. And it was before mm -hmm. those were available in .NET. And this is because I was kind of learning and seeing and, and maybe copying sometimes in the DSLs that I was creating as well for solving different uh, problems, um, things that I've learned and that I've kind of um, uh, valued um, mm -hmm. in the other uh, languages and paradigms into my own uh, you know, um, uh, world. And I think this is extremely important for developers to do. I yeah, think, I, I agree with you about the paradigms. So I think you should take a look what the others are doing, right? And 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 think about the paradigms. But um, I have to, um, to 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 use uh, JavaScript as well for the front end, for instance, which is dynamic. So it's um, and this is already you now have some experience with completely dynamic language and, and with static language. I think there is not enough time, you know, to learn too many languages. This is a little bit my problem. So no, uh, if um, but yeah, this is just a side note. Um, what also interests me. Which you know projects 
are you in, were you interested back then? This was like an enterprise project backend because what was the you know the the JBoss project about and what was the next project? So you are a backend guy or what was your your mm -hmm. ideas back then or were your your interests maybe? So I I I find that I did uh, I, I kind of went through a lot of journeys and changes. So I was a backend guy and then I became. Um, a front-end guy for a mobile app. So it was kind of the back-end and front-end of okay. mobile. I was actually writing uh, for um, Java mobile applications, J2ME, as well as uh, oh. a compact framework in .NET for a mm -hmm. while. And I came back to back-end development. Mm -hmm. And I did a lot of kind of uh, domain-driven design type architecture on large enterprise applications. Um, like everybody else, the, kind of tried to wrap my hand head around uh, kind of uh, bounded contacts and all sorts of uh, abstractions that were very unfamiliar to me at the time. But mm -hmm. again, I, I think one of the things that I really feel fortunate, and I'm sure a lot of other software developers feel fortunate in having experienced, is that there was, in that sense, a lot of discovery as well in those years mm -hmm. in terms of how to code and what works and what doesn't. You know, mm -hmm. just think about uh, how people were coding when I got started and then moving to, f forward in time to today where there's continuous integration and, and, and continuous deployment and um, different kind of understanding about how asynchronous uh, asynchronous flows should work and promises and uh, how to uh, um, scale um, horizontally and all sorts of things that, that were just, you know, we were discovering them. Uh, and the same goes for practices. You know, I, I started in a completely um, non-agile kind of waterfall process and the organizations were learning how to do agile, and we were learning. But was it not obvious to you that uh, that you know the waterfall doesn't work, because from the beginning the entire UML, you know, and unified uh, how it's called, directional unified process, and whatever we did back then, for me it was it's like maybe there are smart guys out there which who who are really able to follow this. But for me, I always cheated and always was, you know, had the small iterations. And at the end, I drew the diagrams and just, you know, shipped everything. So it looked like waterfall, but was actually uh, just, you know, uh, I hacked down the code and created the diagrams afterwards. This is what we did from the beginning. So, uh, I was, yeah. I was not confident enough, I guess, at the beginning, because, you know, I, I stepped into a position as a developer. Mm -hmm. Everybody else had opinions about like how development should look like with PRDs and MRDs and I don't even remember all of the different acronyms uh, and all I remember is just how documentation pro uh, focused everything was mm -hmm. um, and in all of that process you know you, you it, it was kind of accepted and accepted truth that this is the way to write uh, software and I guess they were modeling things from other industries that this is the way that yeah uh, exactly do. from building where fighter planes or rockets or something right exactly where it's very hardware oriented and you can't go back and change or iterate it it doesn't kind of uh, work mm -hmm. that way um so it was very hard to to think about something else at the time it was obvious that you know things were not working we were always kind of uh, missing deadlines and being uh, late 
Uh, and then changing requirements and being later and 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 all of the pains that I, I, I guess now many of them are solved in modern practices were there. So you saw different languages and you code a lot. So meanwhile, what, what I'm thinking is the, uh, you know, the, the path to success is write very simple code. And simple means, you know, um, how to call it, purpose, purpose-driven, right? So, uh, of course, not too simple. It has to be... It has to work somehow, and try to write obvious code. So you know code which reflects clearly what you are thinking, and and then constantly try to improve the code. So um, so if you see you know okay this is simple, but it doesn't work. So I will just improve it. And I think this is the only thing which works. So um, how I got I mean you you mentioned the bounded context. This is how I got the idea because you know. The bounded context. Uh, if you copy something, is okay. This is, and then you you can you know, uh, afterwards you know try to to find out whether you know the entity uh, mm -hmm. should be uh, factor out into a single entity or two copies are enough. And mm -hmm. I think if you do this, uh, at least in Java, so this is my background or JavaScript, you are all already you know good because uh, it is it will be easy to maintain. And but you should. You should always try to improve, you know, remove redundancies, rethink, review your own code. And, and, and this is, I think this is the only, you know, recipe to success or, or, or not. I, I, I guess what you say really resonates with me in terms of architecture or should I say over architecture that mm -hmm. was maybe the next phase uh, as a developer because after, you know, we, we got started on these different ideas like, you know, domain-driven uh, design and um, other concepts like CQRS and mm -hmm. uh, um, event sourcing and all sorts of patterns that we started working on. Uh, there was a time where we were very much over-architecting everything mm -hmm. um, and kind of maybe making things much more complex than they should be because... Mm -hmm. We followed a lot of structures that were obvious to us and creating hexagonal architectures yeah. or what. Hexagonal uh, architectures where only, you know, two protocols were given. This was the, the uh, typical Java, no hexagonal architecture and we only had JAXORES. But I say one day you will see we get WebSockets, whatever, but now we just have, yeah. you know, rest. <laughs> and, and, and using complex tools, like yeah. there was uh, one uh, really... Uh, there was one video that really influenced me as a developer. I, I can't remember the name of the of the uh, person who gave the talk. I think, um, but the, but the topic was simple versus easy, and mm -hmm. he was basically talking about what's the difference between the two and how oftentimes we choose the easy solution, but it's not simple. It just creates complexity. And I guess for me too, over the years, I've learned to value simplicity much more than other values in coding, like maybe reusability, like yeah. maybe modularity. Uh, and, you know, adding layers of abstractions is easy. There is nothing you can solve by adding another layer of abstraction, as the saying goes. But um, there is a cost. There is a big cost to abstraction. Yeah. And when you learn the cost, then, then you know when to balance it out. And, you know, maybe you don't need to use Hibernate, even though it gives you yeah. the ability to change the database each time because maybe the database is important. Maybe you need to create an application that runs simply and effectively on one database. 
Uh, Great example. A great example. Hibernate or JPA, right? So if I will build yeah. CRUD, create read, update, delete right now with a Hibernate or JPA. So this was the simplest possible code because I would now have an entity with two annotations and an entity manager. But yeah. and the next requirement, if I see really complex query or you know some batch processing framework, you can always throw away JPA, remove the annotations, yeah. then you have your data object, convert mm -hmm. it to a Java record. And for instance, go with JDBC, right? This is what I. But if I would start with building my own, you know, ORM, my own one, then I have twenty layers of abstraction, and exactly. then it's really hard to use something different because you already invested in twenty layers. But if I invest in a simple JPA entity with three annotations, then it is very easy to move away from it, right? So this is this is you are exactly right. Um, yeah, perfect. So um. We are almost, you know, uh, we share the same, you know, same ideas, which is uh, unusual because usually I have lots of, you know, lots of discussions regarding modularity and I'm building monolithic code and uh, why I'm not using interfaces or, you know, the craziness in Java. I don't know whether you remember that you have interfaces and implementation with Impl. You know, I say, why are you doing this? Uh, I mean, why are you calling everything Impl, right? Uh, or interface with I. I mean, I see this an interface. And this is, by the way, an example of when I switch between Java and .NET, I could see that, hey, wait, in .NET we're not doing it, and it's clear. And yeah. then I ported that idea back to Java. So it's it's kind of that like that exchange that, that I think is really productive uh, for developers because it, it allows us, like the developers in my team who, are, who have more um, a wider range or wider gamut in their experience. It doesn't even need to be between programming languages. It could be somebody who has some experience in DevOps or somebody who has experience yeah. in QA thinking or somebody who has experience um, in other fields altogether So uh, that, that you can kind of bring uh, and, and make uh, relevant in your coding. So, I, I literally though cautious with the with the uh, polyglot programming because in one of projects last year I reviewed um, a project and I think there were like 20 microservices in, and I think more than six languages. So what I remember, there was Node.js, TypeScript, uh, Go, Java, two flavors of Java, Quarkus and Spring, and other, and Groovy. And I asked mm -hmm. them, you know, why? But say, yeah, because of Polyglot. And, and, and no one understood, you know, the entire thing. And then we agreed to Quarkus. And now it's everything Quarkus. I mean, it is maybe, you know, some developers are not happy, but it is simple. You know, Simpl everything is the same. You can look at every microservice and you understand everything. So this is why I'm a little bit cautious with uh, Polyglot because it sounds uh, like a best practice. Just pick, mm -hmm. you know, the language of the day and go for it. But what do you, what do you forget? If you have mm -hmm. 10 languages in the project, I mean, there are almost no developers who understand everything at once, right? So th th that's the problem a little bit. Definitely. Mm -hmm. And I guess this, this kind of um, led to the next challenge that, that I encountered, which is, you know, the, there was at that point a big trend towards um, continuous deployment and mm -hmm. towards releasing faster and faster. Mm -hmm. And at that point in time, I realized something that was really troubling me. And that was that we were essentially releasing faster in my team. We were doing everything we were told but it kind of felt like all we were doing is kind of throwing features over the fence at a higher velocity or mm -hmm. uh, you know, faster intervals. And this started bothering me because I was noticing that you know, somebody would take on a task, 
they would develop it, they would write all of the tests and everything, and then they would merge their PR and move on to the next task. And there was zero learning in terms of, you know, from the very basic questions like, is this code running? <laughs> and did, did I miss something in an if statement? Is anybody using it? Uh, to did it improve life for everyone? Uh, is it scaling? Is it working as intended? And it seemed to me what we replaced feedback with was essentially alerting and monitoring, which to me was not very effective because mm -hmm. it seemed like it was very reactive. I sometimes in my team jokingly called it BDD, but not behavior-driven uh, design, but bug-driven development because essentially we would get a bug, we would get an alert, and we would fix it, then on to the next one, and it was not sustainable. Mm -hmm. And this is kind of what got me completely to rethink uh, the whole uh, paradigm around feedback. Um, and when I looked at kind of DevOps loop models and all of that, it was obvious that, you know, the, the DevOps loop didn't have an arrow going in one direction from code to prod. It also had an arrow going in the other direction. And sometimes it even said continuous feedback on it. But I could not find a tool that would actually allow that to happen. So there, there, there are more problem with right. So uh, mm -hmm. I would say, if you from my Java experiences, mm -hmm. first, first the um, the lack of rewards mm -hmm. or 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 even stats, you know, for end-to-end -end tests. So yeah. in Java, there is a lots of uh, um, um, you know how to call it focus on unit mm -hmm. tests because it is mm -hmm. the easiest to get code coverage but if you if you look at a microservice you know there is the the unit tests are absolutely not that interesting because uh, they are just testing the basic al basic algorithms and never the system from outside so if you start with system tests you know uh, mm -hmm. no, the large companies are no more that interested because you know the statistics are no more visible to management, and they say, "I don't care about that. I only need code coverage." You know, eighty percent of unit tests, I'm happy. So, and the next thing is monitoring on observability. So, what happens is, you know, the developers either they write you know interceptor and they just say this method was fast and the other was slow, so it is pointless, or you know, you get the entire JVM metrics, which is even worse because you see, I saw, I was actually in war room and they showed me you know the garbage collector. I said, okay. Who cares about that? I, I mean, yeah, we can look at this, but no one knows what, what's going on here, right? And uh, w what I think is simplicity is um, focus on what's really important in projects. So what I do in Java, so we design packages with business names, and mm -hmm. these packages with business names are like large entities, like large domain objects, right? So we would you would find shopping cart, mm -hmm. I don't know, addresses and, and invoices and stuff like that. And, and what I just say is, um, I would expect at least one gauge or counter per such package. Mm -hmm. So if you, you know, if you have the concept of shopping cart, I would just like to see, you know, how many, you know, items uh, daily are stored in the shopping cart, just, you know, the basic metrics or how many shipping orders per day we have. And then, you know, try to learn from that. And then we can, you know, detect anomalies. So if there is one day where nothing happens or too much happens, so we see this. And, and the basic counter in Java is just one method with an annotation. So there's actually nothing to do. 
Um, but still, you know, this is uh, really hard to convince the projects to do this. Also, there's almost no effort. And uh, and uh, the worst back then was Hystrix, for instance, right? You know, I don't know what they remember. So it was in every Java project. And I asked the consultant why we have everywhere the, you know, the dashboards from Hystrix. I say, yeah, because it looks professional. So, yeah, it lo looks professional, <laughs> but it's pointless. I know the, all the, you know, all the diagrams, I just see the, you know, the, the technical stuff from my projects, but not what's really going on, right? So I would say every concept which is significant has to be exposed as a metric and the technical details should be hidden. And afterwards, I can look, you know, during debugging phase about JVM and, 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 and hotspot behavior and whatever. So this is what I'm doing and I'm just wondering, this is just obvious, right? So if you have a car, you also see, you know, how, the, how fast the car goes and know, know how, I don't know, how hot is the oil somewhere, you know? Who cares about that, right? So I, I think the, the, the two things. First of all, you're absolutely right that often we have pretty dashboards that are useless. And mm -hmm. I've seen this happen in multiple organizations where they just have these fancy LCDs and these nice dashboards and nobody's looking at them. It, mm -hmm. it could very well just be a static picture. But it looks nice. Mm -hmm. But then I want to tell you something that happened to me um, a few a few years ago where I had one of the developers in my team um, introduce a log message and with a, with a counter. He was basically working on a background process and he was just logging how much time the back process, the background process took to run and kind of take care of all the jobs. And the reason he was doing it is he was introducing code changes. And to him, unlike any other developer in the team, he had kind of the sense of ownership that he said, I want to know the impact of my changes as I'm writing them. I don't even want mm -hmm. them to later I'll, I'll monitor their in production, but I want to see I'm adding some queries, I'm using mm -hmm. uh, different strategies. I want to see what's going on. And of course, he was spamming everybody with the console out messages. And, and that was kind of um, maybe a f funny uh, to talk about later. But to me, it was also an indication of two things. First of all, that he has that sense of uh, ownership beyond just doing his task to make sure mm -hmm. that it runs and it works well that I'm looking for in developers. And B, that he was using the absolute wrong tooling in order to do it. Yeah. Um, but the tooling is fixable. Uh, and the fact that we can actually rely on this type of feedback during development, that realization really started to pick my interest uh, as a developer. Because to me, that allows us um, maybe to, to shift uh, what observability into a more continuous mode, which is what he was doing. So I was recalling testing, and testing, when I got started, was not continuous. So yeah. kind of road test, and if you were kind enough, you ran them. And sometimes you didn't do it for a while, and then you tried it, and it was not working. And then you had to kind of fix everybody's mistakes uh, that were accumulating for a while. So the premise was, maybe we can do the same with observability. So maybe we can create a situation where my team member would not have to write a console log and kind of uh, keep track of it or even have a dashboard that he would kind of keep looking at to see like the effect of his code. 
but to have that automated somehow. Mm -hmm. Interesting with the logs, because, uh, for instance, if you're on AWS and you write, you know, a log in specific format, it's called EMF, embedded metrics format. The cool story is it automatically creates metrics from it. So this could be anti-pattern, which becomes becomes a best practice. But yeah. um, outside on-premise, what I'm doing, I'm just using open metrics on Prometheus, for instance, because mm -hmm. usually, you know, Prometheus is running, so that's for, for, for static gauges, it, it is working. But back to you. So you, you move back and forth, you learn different languages. So you spend some time and in, 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 uh, with J2ME and, uh, and, uh, <laughs> and .NET. And mm -hmm. what happened then? So, you know, what else is it? By the way, were you always freelancer? You work for a company or? No, I, was al I was always uh, kind of uh, employed. Um, okay. As a consultant, architect, developer, or what was your... I was a developer, then a team lead, then I was a, a line manager, then I was an, an uh, R&D manager for a while. Um, but I didn't like the management aspects that much, mm -hmm. so I kept uh, kind of crawling back into the code. Uh, I also, I, I guess, another kind of vertical that I found myself uh, oscillating on is, is kind of the product management versus development side, because... As I was writing code, I was very invested in kind of, okay, why am I writing this? What is the use case? So I, I became a product manager for a while, and then I hated the fact that I wasn't coding. So I became a product manager who also introduces code into the code base. And then um, that became a problem. So I, I was kind of uh, oscillating back and forth, uh, mm -hmm. trying to find my balance uh, in a way that would allow me to both care about the why and how, stay involved in the technical implementation and, and write code um, and ended up doing all sorts of positions with made-up names that, that just allowed me to balance these things. Um, what, I did was eventually... the best, what was the best made-up name so you came up with? Uh, Director of Enterprise Architecture, was it? Or... This was a cool name, Director of Enterprise Architecture. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I think I came up with it. So, yeah, the, you know, the... the um, I, I worked at a great uh, company, and 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 th they were really trying to also allow me to fulfill my my potential. Uh, so they were really great about kind of trying to help me find a spot where I would, you know, not feel that I was frustrated mm -hmm. because I was lacking, um, you know, involvement in product or involvement in code, and then later in in other topics as well. So um, I I found I was fortunate enough to be able to find positions that allowed me to balance all of these uh, different aspects. Uh, but there too, by the way, from the product management perspective, I was a bit struck by the gap between the amount of tooling for feedback that I had as a product manager. So think about, you know, I'm not going to name any, all of the commercial toolings, but just, you know, Google Analytics and other kind of tools that just give you so much feedback from a product perspective about what's going on and your designs and your ideas and, and all sorts of things that, that are that you can derive from the data and a lot of tools to to analyze it and to give you data to or conclusions and insights to use in your uh, in your work versus the developer that doesn't always have the equivalent of Google Analytics for code or for the technical uh, areas. This was your uh, realization, your observation that we have almost nothing in code and there is something out there now for everything, right? 
Yeah. So and 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 as as I looked more into it, I saw that yeah, there were reasons for it. So all of the APMs were created for DevOps originally and IT and and monitoring and alerting. These were the use cases they were used to. So the teams themselves, the engineering teams, even though I tried to get them to you know work on the you know collect data, uh, use uh, the because the you know. It's not a problem of not having enough data, mm-hmm. um, especially today. You know, and I've, there's open telemetry, and there is a lot of amazing work that the micrometer team is doing, and there is plenty of data out there. But what got to me was that developers were not actively using that data when they were developing code. Mm-hmm. Just like my team uh, member who who added that console log to track performance but he he was kind of the exception to the rule uh, mm-hmm. r- that, that kind of highlights the gap here mm-hmm. and and this is something I started looking into very seriously because it was impacting me in in as a product manager because it was impacting me later as a developer I was trying to figure out why that is why are developers, and we're, you know, we, we call ourselves engineers, which has a very scientific uh, <laughs> feel to it. Uh, and so let's be scientific. Why are we not using more data mm-hmm. in our work? Um, we, I just rolled out, I don't know, a new upgrade to the DAL or whatnot. Um, why am I not testing the, the its impact right away? Why is it moving to the next task that it seems obvious should be the next thing to do? And this is uh, what I started looking into. And what I found out was that, A, there was a problem that it didn't happen automatically. And just like testing, if it doesn't happen automatically, it probably won't happen. B, there was a big expertise gap in the sense that, you know, this data is hard to work with. Even if you look at graphs and uh, statistics, you know, you, you need to at least understand some basic statistics so that you don't pick up like an outlier and and start getting to weird conclusions. It takes work and it takes effort. And it's often outside of the comfort zone of many developers, which is why it's kind of not that intuitive that it's happening. And at the same time, I noticed something else that was frustrating me because I was looking at open telemetry, which is a pretty new technology. And at first I was kind of ecstatic about it changing the the playing field completely. But if you search up open telemetry in Java, for example, somehow all of the results that would come up would be about how to enable it, how to start, uh, tutorials, um, getting started guides, some, all of them sponsored by vendors. And there is not a single article or blog that tells you, hey, the goal is not observability, it's improving your code. And here is how you can actually use that data over there. Here's some practical ways you can use the mm-hmm. data, the metrics, the traces, all of that in order to, to write better code or in order to catch issues earlier or in order to understand how your code is being used in various environments. Mm-hmm. This is what I was looking for and this is what I was not finding. I think the only exception, and I really need to uh, give a very warm shout out to uh, Jonathan Ivanov and Marcin from the... Um, micrometer team who who are actually promoting this type of content and trying to get more practical example out in the field. But other than that, if you look at the kind of 
um, landscape of with all of the enthusiasm going on about observability and open telemetry, most of it is not something that the developer can use or translate into mm -hmm. something that they would do in the day to day. Mm -hmm. And for me, this this was something that uh, was almost kind of uh, unimaginable. Like, how could we have so much data on the one hand? How how can we how how is it that we're at an age where we made great leaps forward in terms of observability, and 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 we have all of this technology and data, and on the other end, we're using so little of it when we work. How do we bridge that gap? What you did about that? So. Uh, at first, I tried to implement different uh, ways to work with the data myself and my team. Mm -hmm. And it always came out short. Some of it was cultural. People were kind of, you know, that sounds like, you know, complex things that will just generate more work for me. I'd rather do something else. Uh, and some of it was the complexity of the data because, you know, take tracing for example you can look at an individual trace and it tells you a lot about a single request but without starting to aggregate and running some basic statistics on it and understanding different properties around you know anomalies and 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 um, kind of changes uh, that you can identify within the trace it's very hard to make it into something that I can say oh this is my code change and as a result of that, you know, the the uh, things are X percent uh, slower or I created a bottleneck for other processes using it or mm -hmm. um, maybe there are some anti-patterns that we can detect here. And even so my idea was with, you know, was the business components of packages to expose some mm -hmm. business metrics. Mm -hmm. And your idea was to drill down then, right? So what I would identify is, okay, I don't know, there's something problematic going on in the shopping cart. And mm -hmm. then your idea would be to drill down there and link, you know, the open telemetry data, open tracing or whatever, and try, you know, to, 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 to calculate the average first and say, okay, this code change, you know, lead to an anomaly. And now mm -hmm. is something wrong with this code because before this push or before the deployment, it looked good. And now, you know, with your change right now, something happened here, right? Yeah, so definitely my vision is to be able to get to a state where mm -hmm. we can do two things. A, that as we code, if we create an issue, mm -hmm. if we somehow, I don't know, reference a lazy Hibernate attribute in rendering our, our view and we create a session in view anti-pattern, mm -hmm. or if we create an N plus one, or if we cause a new type of exception, or if we add an, any type of regression, then there would be something there that would be automatically looking at that data prior to deployment as we're writing code and then and, the oh, other okay. mm -hmm. and then the other aspect of that vision is that if we collect already collected information from production and testing that we would mm -hmm. be able to look at any piece of code and say how is this working is this working well what are okay. some scalability issues it's facing where are the weak spots what are okay. the top things we should be improving about it so basically mm -hmm. give on the one hand shorter feedback loops and mm -hmm. on the other, and just give more feedback to the developers that would allow them to own their code. Because mm -hmm. today, my code ownership ends when I deploy, if okay. I don't do something else. And so, uh, your experimentations, your experimentations mm -hmm. with your team um, were not well received. 
and 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 then and what happened then so you started you know to to focus more on a product or what happened then so i got to the conclusion that it needs to be automatic we need just like we have a continuous integration mm-hmm. pipeline that is automatically and take takes our code into production if we don't have a continuous feedback mm-hmm. uh, pipeline or some kind of arrow that goes in the other direction that just automatically always collects information from observability and gives us back that information in our tooling and IDEs, mm-hmm. then it won't work. And this is why I started a company called Digma. And Digma is so just you stopped your work, then you say, okay, developer is not with me. <laughs> and then you started a company, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Interesting. When was it? Uh, almost a year and a half ago. Oh, okay. Interesting. So it's a young it's a startup, right? I, I actually... I was talking to a lot of entrepreneurs afterwards, and it was funny because um, many of them had this whole, I'm going to go through an ideation phase, and then I'm going to think about what's the right idea that I want to do that would make me the most money, and how do I raise funds for it? And for me, it was the opposite. I was just like, okay, this is kind of an evolution of my thinking as a developer. Somebody needs to build this. Uh, let's go get feedback about it. And there is a saying about VCs that when you come for money, you get feedback. When you come for feedback, you get money. So it was absolutely the same. I came for feedback. Uh, I got some money so I could leave my day job and start working on it. Mm-hmm. And my number one uh, constraint, though, that I was very clear about in the beginning, it needs to be free for developers. I'm not, even though there's going to be people spending time, it's not after, you know, if developers, Developers shouldn't pay for their dev toolings. Uh, organizations could, but developers shouldn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is where we got started on Digma, and we assembled a small troop of beta testers, old friends, and we said, hey, guys, we're going to try and iterate with you in a very agile way and kind of find out what can help you um, in exactly those use cases and scenarios. What can help you when you code to get more indications about how your code is working and what can help you from the data that we have out there in the field about your code to understand more about the code, especially, by the way, if it's complex, if it's not yours, if it's legacy. Uh, the more opaque the code is for you, the more uh, you need more transparency, the, the more observability can help you actually understand it from who's using it, who might break, to... Uh, what was the behavior before I made this change, it, mm-hmm. and what is it now? Is it already working right now? Is it usable? Yeah, so we created it as a plugin uh, for IntelliJ for now because we're kind of mm-hmm. working working our way through different platforms and IDs. Java to me was the first uh, was the first language. So this is what I wanted fun. to say. You know, after all your experiments with Ruby, uh, Python, whatever, you found your old lo- love, you know, Java, and you say Java is the one I have to start with, right? Yeah, there were several reasons for it. One (laughs) is, it's always the people, right? One is the people, because I met such an amazing community that I really kind of internally, I had the urge to work more with them. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I was at, at at the time we were starting, you know, we didn't decide to, to start with Java when, when we got, when we just started Digma, but and at first we did some Python and some Node and some um, um, Golang and other languages. But then eventually it kind of came down to where we were finding the most interesting and interested people. 
that would kind of and and it didn't make sense to start with a kind of supporting many different languages because it just meant we were detracting from the value that we could give each one. Mm-hmm. So we decided let's pick one language and, and be great at it and see how we can and and t- and pick the community that is best uh, kind of uh, that has the most willingness and also that we like working with the best. And this was Java kind of hands down. You know, we went to a lot of conferences and I, I guess I went to DevNexus a while back in uh, uh, in Atlanta where mm-hmm. it was kind of made completely obvious. Yes, the, because, you know, all of the other places I was talking about the technology and they were like, you know, politely curious as, you know, Americans often are. They were kind of uh, smiling, but not really co- committed. Uh, but in DevNexus, I just went around randomly talking to people saying, hey, I have this idea. What do you think? Do you want to take a look at our booth? And and they were like, oh my God, of course, I'd love to give you more feedback. And this was kind of a different attitude, I guess, from the community that we received there. And this made it very easy to decide, you know what, let's, let's, let's double down on Java. Let's make the best Java uh, kind of developer observability thing that we can do. So uh, absolutely. Um what happened is right i got uh, a a message in the uh, airhacks discord server uh, there is an interesting project you know you have to talk to them so uh, this was a java developer of course you know maybe he, uh, he met you and devnexus or whatever and i said okay it looks interesting so i ping one of your developers i guess and they say okay no i have to talk to you so now now we are talking right so it's an interesting project let's do it so i have no idea what what you are doing but um, I'm really glad because already it was really interesting conversation with your background, completely different to mine, you know. I really like J2E, Java, you didn't like it at all, but we still share, you know, uh, some some ideas. So um, it's really interesting. And so there's a, a plugin to IntelliJ. So uh, right now I have IntelliJ Toolbox. I use mostly Visual Studio Code, for instance, because um, yeah. I have to also do, you know, lots of JavaScript front-end and Java is just fine. As I use Maven, so it works perfectly with Visual Studio Code right now. And... Um, what uh, what I misunderstood prior, it is not about uh, open telemetry. You are applying more like more or less machine learning, right, to uh, mm-hmm. to find patterns and and compare it, you know, with best practices and and try to predict what happens when you write this code. Then maybe this and this will happen, right? This is and and what I also understood is that you are able to learn from your production experience and apply, you know, the your not not or your the experience from a single production project to reapply it back to the code base, right? This is what I understood. So not exactly. Uh, it, it, I kind of look at it from two different directions. On the one end, we wanted to completely remove this whole open telemetry or observability okay. which from the equation. Mm-hmm. You know, we approached developers, we told them, hey, we have this open telemetry thing. They, they looked, yeah, it's exciting, but it sounds complicated. Maybe you should mm-hmm. talk to our DevOps. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that's when we decided, okay, it should be a button. That's it. It should be a toggle button. I mm-hmm. want to collect information about my code. And if we do open telemetry behind the scenes or something else, that's great. Mm-hmm. But as a developer, uh, don't tell me how the watch works. Tell me what's the time. And mm-hmm. we, so we completely abstracted that part. You can, if you use open telemetry, you can send data to us. But other than that, it's kind of a, a very simple uh, toggle just to enable and to start working. So what are you doing then? And then most of the thing that, or most of the challenges, as, I, as we, we discussed before, is not the data, is actually analyzing it. 
Okay. So what we're doing is basically we're collecting data from open telemetry metrics, logs, traces, and so on. And we're finding out what it means about the code over time and with changes. So um, we can, as I'm writing code, we can do all of these things that I expected my developer to do. So for example, if I introduce a code smell, if I, if my code created a change in how things works, I should be aware of it at the very least. And sometimes if it's a big anti-pattern, I should also be alerted to it. So it's kind of like a living documentation in the sense that you can look at each piece of code and understand exactly how it's functioning via code lens, via um, um, kind of being able to double click into it and see more information and understand kind of what are the, the weak areas in my code and especially regarding the code that I'm introducing right now. And at the same time, being able to collect information from production environments, as you said, or testing, um, and just have that visibility in, in my code so that I know, okay, and there, there are many different types of cases here. It could be, you know what, the most issues are in this piece of code, but in the testing environment, I'm doing nothing there. So maybe I should add some more tests. It's, it's not even hit uh, in that scenario. Um, or it could be, you know, this is the code that I just rolled out. Let me see if it's being used. Let me see how it's working. And in, to do that, to get to that level where we're not just showing you graphs and metrics and data that don't, you know, they don't mean a lot. Like as a developer, is, is a high CPU good, bad? I want to utilize, you know, much, a lot of CPU, but, um, so is it good that I reached a high, uh, high utilization or not? Uh, these these questions are very hard for developers to answer for me as well. So what we added was a lot of machine learning and data science around how do we reduce this down to specific conclusions that we can find out. You know, the the system is short of resources. This is something we can find out in production. Or uh, this specific code has a critical section that's causing a scaling issue because everything else is waiting for this one uh, piece of code to complete before it can move on. So this this is kind of the the thinking and analytics that we uh, we added into uh, into Digma, and the idea is to make that something that's you know very transparent for the end user, so that they don't need to worry about you know how am I going to start, where do I get started, what is the uh, how do I start setting up micrometer or open telemetry or something like that. We just wanted to have this to try to overcome the aversion that many developers have to something so outside of their comfort zone like observability. What's interesting, there's the, there was the episode 49 of the Airhex FM podcast, 2019, and uh, I had a chat with an H2O developer. And, mm-hmm. um, and I always had the idea, because, you know, if I do something, let's say, but not at, at runtime, so let's see, I have a REST endpoint, right? And I'm sending data to the endpoint. And mm-hmm. if I know the data, an exception happens. So there is a direct link between, you know, the input and the exception. Mm-hmm. So it should be possible with machine learning, you know, to predict, you know, the exceptions and just analyze this. Mm-hmm. And this, what you did, is very similar, but uh, not at runtime, just uh, at the code mm-hmm. level. So it was the, the episode number 49. So it's really interesting. So this is what I always, you know, try to do. So the machine learning, you can actually analyze the log file with the exceptions and try you know because there's a direct link time whatever to to the code and to the runtime runtime data so one question so what 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 i understood is you are linking more or less the commits to 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 uh how to call it to averages right on the on the server so you know you know this is the 
commit cause you know this change this change and this change and over time you get better and better in predicting you know what happens so if i start with the project is there something like a seed knowledge you know which i gain from the beginning or uh, there is a learn phase you know one month until like you know yeah. what what happens yeah so if you start using digma you install the plugin by the way everything is runs locally on 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 your machine so i know a lot of users are kind of wary about sending out data to the cloud so yeah. Everything is running locally. You don't uh, need to send out uh, information anywhere. You uh, install Digma and you continue on coding. And then what will happen is immediately as you run your code, debug, test, and so on, basically generating runtime data, you'll immediately start seeing additional information. Some of it would be around you know, basic statistics like you know, this specific request, where is most of the time being spent mm-hmm. um, to things that are more towards trends. You know, um, uh, since I started working on this project, I've been accumulating more data and I've seen the data access uh, speed um, mm-hmm. um, decrease uh, or I've, I've seen that, you know, maybe there, I should be, add an index because every time I access this table uh, and these columns, uh, it's becoming slower uh, the, the more data I have in the database and so on. So the idea is that Right away, you get this X-ray vision about the code because, and and it's just a reflection of an analyzing the code, tracing metrics and logs. That's it. So this and is like that, we get we get with Digma pre-trained model with some basic best practices, right? Exactly, and not all of it is machine learning. We have some aspects that are machine learning, some aspects that are statistics, and okay. some aspects that are uh, just you know, basic rule engine based analytics is just look for specific patterns. But actually uh, all, all machine learning is statistics, right? Yeah, but in this case it's more basic statistics. You know, oh basic even, statistics, okay, I understand. Yeah, One question about the button. How you classic. get the data from production or from from remote server? Not even production. Let's say I have a dev uh, whitefly, let's say, right? A beautiful J2E server with lots of XML running yeah. and remote location. How you get the data or what I will have to do to provide you the data? Yeah, so the way we structure Digma is that you can start right away in dev just to prevent any type of uh, wait up for somebody to authorize to get data from production, which is often a big deal. So you can get started right away running tests locally, debugging locally. We're even smart enough to know things like this is slow because I had a breakpoint and I'm waiting (laughs) (laughs) because I introduced regression and things like that. We just, you know, because we, we, we worked it out from the fields, we... Uh, we got a lot of hands-on knowledge and, and handling these type of edge cases. And then eventually you uh, decide, okay, I should get some information from CI, from production as well, because that will give me more context about this code. And that's where you can run Digma anywhere, basically. If you want to run it like in, in, uh, in your Kubernetes cluster, yeah. in some central location. And because Digma is just an open telemetry receiver, okay, so... It's just an endpoint, just like you send Logs.io or CoreLogix or, I don't know, Grafana Cloud or any of these tools. You can just send it to Digma as an endpoint and it can run locally on your network. So you don't need to expose anything. To it's not cloud. a scrape like Prometheus. I have to send, you know, the, the metrics to Digma, right? Yeah. So basically, it's, it doesn't scrape anything. You just, uh, uh, in your open telemetry configuration, uh, if you don't have one, you know it's very easy to to add. Uh, and then in your open telemetry configuration, just you know you set Digma to be um, and basically a, a destination to send traces to. That's it. And what 
added value do, do I get? So if I if I do this, would something change in the IDE or I get better predictions and better suggestions? So you start getting other contacts. So you start with the dev contacts. So this is everything we can learn about your code just in dev, just like yeah. the developer yeah. that's yeah. adding the console log. Um, when you introduce CI, we also start looking at the CI and it becomes its own section in the, in okay. the plugin that okay. tells you about, okay, what does CI tell me about this code? Is it hit, even being hit in the CI? If mm -hmm. it is being hit in the CI, what are some of the issues that it's finding out and so on? And then lastly, uh, when you introduce production into the mix, then you can actually see visualize all of the issues that the code has around production and when they're happening and so on. Mm -hmm. And uh, another interesting, what interests me, so for developers is going to be free, right? How, yes. you, how you would like to make money, somehow important, right? So, I mean... So the, the way that we set it uh, up is that we said, basically, for developers, it has to remain free and be free at all times. If at a certain point an organization wants to install it centrally and have multiple users logging into the same instance and they want to start, it becomes not a decision of the developer to use it in an experiment, but, but a decision of the engineering team and the DevOps team to enable it and so on. And then the organization, if it already sees it provides value, there is a share... Uh, like a fair exchange of value around, okay, we're using it, we probably need to pay for it. But uh, for individual developers, even if they work in the organization, they can use it and we it's, we absolutely value their feedback. We're actually happy they're using it for free. Oh, very good. Actually, I like the, you know, I like two points. First, you can start, you know, with your developer machine without sending anything to the cloud. So this is what I really appreciate. So this is an unusual approach, you know, cloudless approach, which I really like. And uh, the, the second thing, which I also appreciate, you know, the endpoint stuff. So you have to send actively the data to Digma and mm -hmm. not Digma as a plugin, which, you know, listens to everything. So this is also what I mm -hmm. really appreciate as, 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 a Java, um, as a Java developer. So how much of, of Digma was written in Java? Um, some parts of it, especially the ones that deal with Java um, and uh, some of the, pl or the plugin for IntelliJ was written in Kotlin. Um, and a lot of the um, processing in the plugin itself are written in Kotlin. Behind the scenes around the microservices, we use everything from .NET to Python to other languages. Okay. Again, because of the libraries and tools we need to use. Mm -hmm. um, but um, I, I guess what we, I, when we got started, we wrote the, ba the very basic uh, services in .NET. And this is where I was mentioning that I, I sometimes hire people that don't have the language expertise. And mm -hmm. I actually got an engineer to be a part of the core team who's a Java developer. And at first, everybody was wary, why are you taking a Java developer to write .NET? But eventually, he became a major asset because he had a lot of experience. Um, my Java is rusty, was rusty by that point, mm -hmm. and I was just coming back to it. Uh, so he, he was able to give us a lot of added context and uh, around, you know, Java, uh, even basic uh, methodologies that are more modern than what I remembered and toolings and so on. So okay. it was great to have on Perfect. And last question, how it was possible to create such a project in one year? A lot of hard work, iteration and feedback. Like if we didn't get feedback from the community, and I'm the first to say that we were wrong in many of the decisions we started mm -hmm out with because even though I'm a developer and I'm writing a software for developer it was at first obvious to me of course I know what to do but then I talked to developers and I thought 
A, not all developers are alike. Each of them have their own kind of uh, nuances yeah. and the way that they look at the world and the problems that they're facing. And B, that I was wrong around many of my assumptions. For example, uh, we found out that it's much better to look at specific opinionated examples rather than provide a generic solution. Mm -hmm. So, for example, look at top spring anti-patterns, top Quarkus mm -hmm. issues, and kind of give a lot of value around that so that right away, if I'm a Spring developer or Quarkus developer and I'm using Digma, I'm getting a lot of value right away. And this is kind of what we wanted to create, basically a different uh, or just make it a non-issue. Of course, I'll enable this plugin and immediately I'll start seeing things that are relevant to my world, not to every developer uh, mm -hmm. out there. Um, right. Right now, lots of my projects are Quarkus projects. So I'm into because you mentioned Quarkus. So is Quarkus popular in your world? So is there lots of Quarkus projects, or what's because you mentioned already? Yeah. So I think I guess the two most popular ones that uh, Digma users are using are uh, Spring Boot and Quarkus. Interesting. Uh, okay. If you, look, if you look at our community, I guess most of it is still Spring Boot, but there is quite uh, uh, some some people who use Quarkus as well. Uh, at, in the beginning, Quarkus had its own issues with uh, observability around the reactive mode and so on, but it was fixed and it's actually working great now. So mm -hmm. uh, I would, um, and, and we actually had to, uh, we updated Digma to have better onboarding for Quarkus just to make sure that it plays oh, very well. Very good, with because lots of listeners are Quarkus actually developers and also in the Airhex uh, Discord server, also lots of Quarkus people, developers. Okay. Yeah, and I have to hats off to to the Quarkus team and Bruno Baptista and some of the other guys there who are really helping us uh, get the best value for for Quarkus developers and guiding mm -hmm. us in a lot of what we're doing. Perfect. So where people can try Digma, so how they should do it, and how they can find you on the internet. So there's also so two, two questions. You, you have two options. Uh, one is just go to uh, Digma uh, AI. That's our website. And there is a Get Digma button there that will just allow you to get the extension from the IntelliJ marketplace. Mm -hmm. You can also go into your IntelliJ um, um, and either community or ultimate, it doesn't matter, go to settings, plugins, search up Digma, and it will pop up there and you can install it from there. Perfect. And then there is another option, which is we have our beta programming. And it's kind of sounds weird. Why do you have a beta when you already have a product out there? But I think products should always be in beta. <laughs> Yeah. Because And the beta program for us are users who are not just interested in being end users, who want to contribute, who want to provide feedback, who are interested in this idea of continuous feedback and how it can apply to programming and how they can actually enrich the community with their ideas. So we have, uh, if you are interested in, in becoming a part of the beta, we can provide the link. It basically, um, you join our Slack group, you'll have access to, uh, we'll to some of the meetings and some of the projects. Uh, and um, you can either contribute to some of the open source projects or just give us more feedback about your own experiences and kind of have your uh, ideas uh, become a part of the product. Mm -hmm. And where can uh, listeners find you on the internet? So on Twitter, for instance? So I'm Doppelware at Twitter, which is D-O-P-P-L-E-W-A-R-E. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, um, other than that, um, um, I have my own Medium uh, blog post, where, a blog page where I'm, I'm writing a lot about the topic of oh, continuity. Also, Doppler? 
Um, I will send a link. It's under okay. my name, Ron. Over, okay. But, uh, and uh, the last question I forgot is uh, Digma open source? Is parts of open source? What's what's the idea? Parts of it are open source, uh, especially at the front end and and some of the things we've done there around visualizing traces. We've also extended the Eager a bit, and we're going to push that upstream as well. Uh, the main reason we decided to close source the back end is because we've had some of the bigger APMs uh, source grabbing, okay. and uh, it, it felt less comfortable for us to work no, very hard. Right. Just see okay. it appear in some APM. Uh, so we decided to close source it, but again, the, we, we were all only able to justify it by saying, hey, we're, it's not like we're going to charge developers money. We're, we just want to be able to work on content without automatically sharing it with other commercial vendors who are making money over it. And I assume that if a no huge company approach you approaches you, you you will sh show them the source code, right? <laughs> I guess. Yeah, okay. it, it, it's not that, and and we're also happy to show it to community members and or collaborating with us. Uh, it's mm -hmm. it's more just protecting ourselves from being. Yeah, you're uh, right. Yeah. It was a pleasure to talk with you, not only about Digma, but also about you know your uh, software development uh, point of view. So I really enjoyed that. And uh, thank Bye. you, and maybe see you next time, right? Or hear you next time. Uh, definitely, definitely. And if you uh, you or the viewers are in the Bay Area, please uh, give me a, um, a message on, a direct message on Twitter, and uh, I'll be happy to kind of uh, hear more about your experiences because uh, I guess, you know, the stories that, that I mentioned around kind of what how users are, are using observability and, and how they're not using it, I'm kind of hearing from... All around and and the more I learn about it the more we can understand the problem and the more we can kind of work with the with the community to provide better a, a better way uh, to actually make it practical to use observability and maybe when we talk again in a year or two or three uh, we'll already see a lot of people kind of uh, with with a little bit of a different uh, paradigm for development that includes more feedback thank you a lot it was a pleasure Likewise, thank you for having me.